Hello and welcome to Monsieur So British, episode 15, written and read by me, Ian Moore. I'm a stand-up comedian, best-selling author, and I run a B&B here in rural France when I'm not in the UK having audiences cough on me. This episode is about some more invasive medical jiggery and literally pokery and is probably not for the faint-hearted. But remember, if you're under the age of 40 and listening to this, fat chance, I know, but this could very well be your future. Anyway, let's crack on before 80% of the population die. Monsieur So British Podcast, Episode 15, Health Kicked. I first lost faith in the medical profession at the tender age of five. A bigger boy on the estate in Blackburn where we lived, he was at least seven foot tall, had taken a dislike to me and had pounded my face with a brick to properly show his feelings. The doctor, who I saw at the Royal Infirmary, was funny and caring and he promised to give me his reflex hammer if I didn't cry. Well, I didn't cry, but I never saw that reflex hammer either. Fast forward about 20 years and I'm in London and about to undergo an already degrading and embarrassing procedure, let's call it that, involving a cotton swab and the um, the centrepiece of my genitalia, if you will. I was terrified and the nurse knew it. Do you mind, um, do you mind if I let a student in to watch? She asked innocently. Now, I may have been young and pretty naive, but I know a delicate position when I see one, and honestly felt that it would be unwise to refuse. But it wasn't medical student singular at all, and once I'd reluctantly agreed, in trooped about 20 medical students, all eager for a closer look, and not one of them had the good grace to even look me in the eye, so to speak. Anyway, it means that I'm wary of medical appointments, even though I've had my fill in the last couple of years. So to pack three in in a week was either kill or cure. The first was always going to be the most physically trying. A double header of colonoscopy and fibroscopy, arse and throat, basically. A medical spit roast. Of course, it's the prep that's the hardest part with these procedures. It's a bit like decorating. The laborious, physically arduous preparation has to be gotten out of the way before anything else can happen. I'd been given a sheet of instructions, including a strict diet, which was to begin four days in advance. No fried stuff, no fruit and veg, it wasn't that big a problem. The purging solution that I'd had to take on the day before, though, was about as undignified as life gets. It acts like a silic bang drain unblocker. You drink a couple of litres of the stuff and within five minutes you're on the toilet behaving like some kind of avant-garde sewer water feature. Fortunately, this is where owning your own B&B comes in handy and I check myself in for the duration of the purge and away from a full house of family, in-laws and cousins. Nevertheless, it was deeply, deeply unpleasant. Have you taken your medication this morning? The brusque nurse didn't look up from her form as she hadn't threw out what was the first of many snappy interrogations that the day would hold. I said no, and that I hadn't taken my medication for about a week, not feeling the need. She was talking about my high blood pressure meds, and in truth I'd just forgotten. She wasn't impressed though, and gave me a telling off. Natalie, who had driven me to the hospital at the crack of dawn, was there to back her up, and there was nothing I could do. I'm not normally one to take a bollocking without a bit of a fight, but when you're wearing a tissue paper shower curtain, struggling to remove your wedding ring, and with literally nothing left inside you, the spirit weakens. Your ability to fight back is diminished, and I hung my head in shame. Next, I was wheeled on my bed, down into the basement by a chirpy porter who was gibbering on about something or other, but I wasn't paying much attention to him. 
I concentrated instead on the ceiling lights as they whizzed above my head. I defy anyone not to be nervous in these situations, and all the detail comes into sharp focus, as though the fatalistic side of you is saying, Take one last look, pal. This is where we get off. The nurses were all friendly, a couple remarked on my accent, and Donna Summer's version of Could It Be Magic was playing somewhere on a radio. Another nurse, who had a small mole on her forehead, asked if I'd taken the purge, and how was it? Ce n'était pas génial, I replied, and that made her laugh. I basically said it wasn't very nice. She stuck a whacking great needle into my vein as she laughed, though. Tough crowd. I don't remember feeling drowsy at any point. I just fell asleep immediately, and then was woken by a nurse what felt like only a few minutes later. Astonishingly, it was all over. It was all done. I felt no discomfort at all. I wasn't even sure they'd actually done anything yet, and I was a little annoyed that they'd woke me up anyway. I don't often get good sleep. I could have done with a snooze button, but they wouldn't let me. They just kept me groggily alert for my Romanian doctor to come in and explain what had occurred. I lay there. I lay there while she spoke, and I remember thinking that it was one of the most pointless conversations I've ever had. To my half-asleep brain, she sounded about as articulate as Charlie Brown's schoolteacher. I'd just been roused from a general anaesthetic and she was explaining complicated medical procedures in French via her heavy Romanian accent. It was like watching a foreign film without the subtitles. I could guess at the gist and so on, but my grasp of specifics was weak to say the least. I think I may have giggled at one point and she cut the interview short. When I was back in my room I told Natalie about my meeting with the doctor and how I'd gleaned little from the exchange but Natalie's more practical than me and started reading the medical notes in my newly updated file. All the tests said normal, so there it was, nothing to worry about. There were some handwritten remarks at the bottom, but the doctor wrote the same way as she spoke and neither of us could make out a word of what she'd written. But it didn't matter, everything was normal. Good times. Yes, you, uh, you have duodenal hemorrhaging, I see. We have to wait for the biopsy reports. Natalie and I looked at each other. I've got what now? This was 24 hours later and we were in the office of my rheumatologist, another Romanian, and so qualified to decipher her colleague's notes. Natalie had come with me for this appointment basically to act as my Joe Pesci and to convince the specialist that the medication I'd had so far was doing more damage than it was good. Duodenal hemorrhaging, whatever that is, and it doesn't sound very nice, seemed proof positive of that. The rheumatologist wasn't convinced, however, though she accepted there was no way I was going to take the stuff she prescribed initially, especially after I explained at length the full effect it was having. OK, she said, you need to go back to my other colleague to be prescribed the expensive drugs. About time, I thought. But, she added, these drugs are very powerful cancer treatment drugs. Your body might not tolerate them. And then she asked me to strip off again, as she always does, and which seemed highly unnecessary, until Natalie pointed out that her previous patient had been a very overweight old woman wearing pop socks. She probably wanted to see a decent body, my wife said. I can't remember the last time my body was complimented, even in such a backhanded way. And there was more to come. I'm very proud of you, Natalie said in the car on the way home. Your French has come on so much. That's the kind of thing, the kind of... The kind of small thing that in a tough week keeps you buoyed. And it wasn't just as said as a boost either. Since I'd done a gig in French at the end of January, a gig I'd fretted about for weeks, my confidence levels in the language have soared. Soared, I tell you. Soared. Like, like Icarus. Soared. 
A couple of days later, I came out of the ear, nose and throat specialist's office holding my nose. Apparently, I had a wound in my nostril that was refusing to heal, hence my nosebleeds. But in order to diagnose that, he'd administered a solution, a bit like the arse purging medicine, that would clear the pipes. This stuff took 20 minutes to take effect, so I was asked to sit in the waiting room while it worked its magic. A young girl, probably about 12, went in after me and was given the same treatment and she emerged looking a little scared. It was quite an unpleasant sensation, to be honest, like feeling that your nasal membrane was dissolving. But it worked, and as I came back out of the surgery again, following the swift diagnosis, I glanced over at the girl and her equally worried mum. Now, what I meant to do was offer some support, some succour to the frightened child, but what I should have said was, ne t'inquiète pas, ce n'est pas mal. Something like that. Don't worry, it doesn't hurt. What I actually said was bon courage, a kind of doom-laden, well, good luck with that. The mother's face fell. Don't say that, she said, as the girl almost burst into tears. I could have stayed, of course. I could have tried to explain myself, but I didn't. I scarpered and vowed never to speak French again. It really had been a tough old week. The thing is, I've always taken a fairly fatalistic approach to health matters anyway. I'm not one to cling to a silver lining or look for the upside. There's many an optimist that lays slain on the battlefield, a look of betrayal on their innocent faces, whereas I expect to be disappointed and therefore never am. But that's when illness is a personal thing. It's you stoically fighting the ravages of some sinister attack, a man alone against the dark forces of malady. Coronavirus, and trust me I'm washing my hands after every spoken sentence here, makes you one of the numbers. It ruins the singularity of your existing ailment. There's no comfort in a crowd, far from it. You're just an ordinary schnook. Your individuality torn from you. You're anonymous. People cope with these things differently, of course. There are the the authorities are lying, it's a conspiracy theory people. There's the panickers, stockpiling loo roll and pasta, thereby proving that all those Britain will survive a no-deal Brexit because of our blitz spirit speeches are all just a load of bollocks. And there's the wait-and-seers, the quiet ones, taking heed of medical advice and precautions, scoffing at the panickers, buying maybe the odd extra bit of toilet roll and still blaming the authorities anyway. And then there's those like me, who've paid in advance for an Italian holiday and who finds it all too horrific and depressing, so spends their time trying to rewrite the lyrics to Grease Lightning so it cheers him up. First it was just endemic, then it was epidemic, now it's pandemic. It's plague frightening. A waste of time, I know. I just want to be informed, that's all. Give me something concrete to fret over, not an information vacuum where my imagination runs wild and I start compiling a funeral list on Spotify. And I'm not talking about COVID hashtag 19 here, coronavirus, whatever the name is. I'm talking about me. It had been over two weeks since a combination of colonoscopy and gastroscopy. Seriously, I had more cameras in more tunnels than a badger set on Springwatch had revealed duodenal hemorrhaging. Two weeks. Biopsies had been taken, determined the exact cause, but I'd heard nothing since. Nothing at all. Now, 
I appreciate that medical test laboratories may have other priorities at this pressing time, but come on, people. Life goes on, hopefully. But let's concentrate on those we can help, not some 95-year-old living on the Italian border. Then the letter from the hospital came, and I opened it nervously. It was bad news. The worst. It was the bill for my hospital stay. 24 euros. Of course, someone given to a brighter disposition could cheerily laugh something like that off, treat it like a perfect release of tension, write the cheque, yes, we still use those, file the bill away, and go chuckling away into a corner, shaking their head at the absurdity of it all. But you know I'm not like that, right? Oh my God. That was my first reaction. Oh my God, they've sent me the bill in advance of bad news so that I pay the damn thing rather than telling their accounts department to go and hang and send any reminders to my fire pit in hell. I paid the bill immediately, hoping, like the parent of a kidnapped child, that it would be swiftly followed by the release of good news. It wasn't. I spent the next week in England with the stress of being away from home, mixing with the increasing tension about my results. I was in England with the boys, Morris and Terence, visiting their older brother Samuel at his grandparents' house. Normally I don't like being away from home and Natalie, but she was keeping me regularly informed and it sounded like I was better off in Crawley, to be honest, and that's not something I've said at all, ever. First, Kipper had run away, eventually returning. Then the Gopes had escaped the fence. Natalie read out the morning roll call of livestock escapees like the weary commandant of a POW camp. Kipper, a regular Steve McQueen, it turns out, was out more often than in until Natalie found his tunnel and put an end to his antics. The goats had been found by a passer-by who knocked on the door to ask Natalie if she was missing any goats. That happens a lot round here. He'd spotted them at the roadside, and unsure of what they'd done or why they'd done it, they were nervously standing by the fence that they'd breached one way, but had no idea how to re-breach the other way sending the horse just the other side of the fence into a furious frenzy at the stupidity of her companions. I'd have let the goats go, personally. That was the mood I was in. My newfound high blood pressure was reacting to things as one might expect, a loss of breath for one, but also a permanent twitching of the left eye, Inspector Dreyfus style. I couldn't control it, and more than once got some angry looks off people in the street who thought I was being over-familiar, and not actually in something of a dither over missing farm animals and missing biopsy results. The crossing home, a supposedly relaxed overnight ferry from Portsmouth to Le Havre, was the roughest I have ever known. The large ferry lurched constantly, sending furniture and people flying, and it felt like a portent, a signal of the doom to come. That's how low I'd sunk. I'd barely slept in days, certainly not on the ferry. My eye twitched and blinked like it was signalling Morse code, and I was constantly heard muttering, Bastard bloody goats. And I was, I'm not ashamed to admit it, scared. I feared the worst. Because while I'd been away, there was still no news, and I was convinced that meant it was bad. You know, like the old saying, no news is bad news. Well, I rang the hospital on Monday, and I know I should have rung before, but like a lot of people, where medical information is concerned, I think I actually prefer to get angry that I have no news rather than actually having something concrete that may raise anxiety levels or worse, require action. For once, though, I decided something must be done. And also, for once, my phone French didn't let me down. I got through to the secretary of the gastroenterologist and she told me, quite politely, that she'd sent the results to my médecin traitant, my GP. She had, however, on further investigation, 
sent them to my old GP, the one who hates me, the one who thinks I'm a Nancy boy for having requested a vasectomy, and the one, now, who had been sitting on potentially life-changing results for a fortnight. Everybody should have an outlet for frustration. Some, some need exercise, some need a drink, some need quiet, calm reflection. Well, I can't exercise. It was too early, even for me, for a drink, and calm reflection wasn't going to cut it here. So I went out and swore at the goats, who had the good grace to hold eye contact with me all the way through the exchange and never once stopped chewing the cud. They looked like Nick Park characters. I looked like an idiot. It's obviously at times like this when cool heads are called for. A strong personality is needed to overcome the raging heat of fear and frustration. A serene, matrix-like third eye to cut through the red mist of anger and gibbering paralysis. That's where Natalie comes in. That's where she's always come in. She rang the secretary back while I frothed imprecations from a fetal position on the sofa and Kipper ate my slippers as if in sympathy. The results were clear, the secretary said. There's nothing to worry about. Wow. Two weeks of fretting, but that was a huge, huge relief. Well, it is, anyway, until we go on that Italian holiday. Thanks very much for listening to this Monsieur So British podcast. Please share it. If you enjoy it, please go to my website, ianmore.info, for any news on books and stand-up gigs and various other things like the B&B. Thanks again, and I'll speak to you soon. Bye. (laughs) 